0: Welcome you to Doxadeyo Hatfield, a multi-ethnic family on mission. Passionate about Jesus, passionate about community, and passionate about serving the city of Chwane. Good morning, beautiful people of Hatfield, because you are, there we go. You guys are looking so, so good this morning, it's great to see you. And uh, as some of you have picked up, and as Joe introed for us so beautifully, we are at the start of a brand new series where we carry on in the book of Acts, and uh, this is our third series in the book of Acts, can you believe it, since uh, we started Hatfield, and this one is going to hopefully land it, maybe land it, we're not too sure, we'll see. But it's called Tales at the Table. And there's something about gathering around a table, isn't there? I think there's there's something that's changed the dynamic of what you're experiencing here this morning because you're sitting across from other people uh, that you do life with and that you enjoy. But really, there's something about sharing our day, sharing good food, sharing hearts, sharing stories, sharing happenings, and there's something about those moments that bind us together and build a foundation for great relationships. And, and really, I was thinking back to this past week, and I was thinking about some of the significant table moments that we got to enjoy as a family. So, so I think yeah, Maya and I were gifted a romantic dinner by someone and we were told, okay, just go away. Just the two of you go and enjoy this incredible romantic meal. And, and for any of you who have littlies or who have had littlies, you know that those moments of being able to escape and just be the two of you are gold. They are, they really are incredible. And, and we had such a great time. It was so, Life-giving for us. We held hands. Can you believe it? I was able to hold hands with my wife and not my daughter. It was it was it was incredible, and um, and we laughed and and there was a little kissy kissy and we ate too much. We ate too much and 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 eventually came up for air. It was great. It was it was such a good evening, but uh, yeah. Mana, I'm showing you how it's done. I'm showing you how it's done. But. Another table moment that we had this week was we got to actually have dinner with our daughter Ori and we do that most nights so that's not strange or anything but but really what we do in those moments is we share about our day and, and we sort of say okay so what happened today and we, we ask Ori although she doesn't tell us too much about what's going on in her day but what she does do in her very special way is she flings food at us and grabs food off our plates so it's a very Different looking around the table moment but it's still a beautiful and special one and then on Wednesday night we got to actually have a community group and be around a table with the people that we do life with and tell stories and learn about Jesus and there was something so connecting about that moment so so really why do we do this because it's what Jesus did Often we would see him gathered around the table and we would see him with his disciples and they'd break bread together and they'd tell stories. And if we look through the book of Acts, what we see over and over again is the early church meeting together in very much the same way that we're doing this morning. They're sitting around a table and we're going to have a time a little bit later in the service where we're going to share a little bit about what we are thankful for with those around this table. But it's time for sharing life. It's time for encouraging each other. And, and one of the stories that I can just imagine the early church was sharing, we find in Acts 12. Okay, so you guys can get your Bibles ready. You can head to Acts 12. We're going to read a passage there. But really, it, it, it was just this, this reality of break bread, share stories, what is the church doing, what is God doing in our midst, and how is he changing the face of our city? And uh, you guys know that the Book of Acts is the history of the earliest Christians showing us what Christians were all about and where they got their power. And this small, seemingly insignificant, multinational, multi-ethnic, multi-class band of people, sound familiar? I hope it does, radically changed the world. Radically changed the world. So we're reading in Acts 12, and we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 19. And, and it says, About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too. And during the festival of unleavened bread, after the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently for him. And that's the the one core verse that I want us to see. The church was praying fervently to God for him. When Herod was about to bring him out for trial, that very night, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. And suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell, striking Peter on the side. He woke him and said, quick, get up. You'd think there would be a gentler way, but uh, striking him on the side, quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you he told him and follow me so he went out and followed and he didn't know that the what the angel did was really happening he thought he was seeing a vision and after they passed the first and second gods they came to the iron gate that leads into the city which opened to them by itself they went outside and passed one street and suddenly the angel left him when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was called Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. And were praying. He knocked at the door of the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognised Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. Can you imagine? We all know people like that. It's so like ah, Um, but but what she was met with when she went into that group of people that were busy praying is they they went, "You are out of your mind." But she kept insisting that it was true, and they said, "It's his angel." Peter, however, kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. Motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell these things to James and the brothers, he said, and he left, and he went to another place. At daylight, there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter, and after Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea. And he stayed there. This is the word of the Lord. So... Our tale picks up with Herod persecuting the apostles and the early church as they spread the gospel of Jesus, and and a lot of his actions seem to be politically motivated, and the scriptures reveal that he had reason to keep the Jewish leaders happy, And, and as such, he didn't stop with the death of James. You'd think, okay, I've killed James, he's one of the core guys, let's just stop there. No, he proceeds to imprison Peter, too. And it's the equivalent of me saying to you, you know what? Mana has just been beheaded. Joe's in jail, and he's next. And you can imagine what that would mean for our church, much less the church in Jerusalem. Um, yes, Mana seems to think it's not a big deal, but um, but really. I I think the death of James would have been devastating to the church at the time. But to lose Peter too would have been unthinkable. So the church did the only thing they were able to do. They earnestly and they persistently prayed. They earnestly and they persistently prayed. So when the scripture says that the church was interceding for Peter, we can only assume it means the whole church in Jerusalem. And at this time, the church numbered about 5,000 men And then also women and children that were connected to those families. And as they all interceded for him, the prison doors open, the angels step in, and Peter goes free. So there is power in the earnest prayer of the church. This scripture that we just read um, uses the word fervent, because I was reading from the CSB. The NIV uses the word fervent earnest, and, and really to, to properly understand the word, I went back to the Greek, because I am Greek, so I should go back to the Greek, and, um, and trying to get to the true meaning of the word, and the word there is ektenes, and, and that word can be translated as constant, strenuous, zealous, or intense, Constant, strenuous, zealous, or intense. When was the last time you prayed a constant, strenuous, zealous, and intense prayer? Because that's what the church was doing. We see this kind of pattern sparking prayer often as we look through the history of the early church. It it normally began with so, followed by a gloomy report, and then came a hopeful but, and a report of saints at prayer, and that led to behold, and then there'd be the report of God's intervention. James 5 verse 16 says it this way, it says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, and how much more so the communal prayer of the church united. So in a commentary on this passage, uh, yeah, John Stott writes the following. He says, here then were two communities, the world and the church, arrayed against one another, each wielding an appropriate weapon. On the one side was the authority of Herod, the power of the sword, and the security of the prison. On the other side, the church turned to prayer, which is the only power which the powerless possess. And there's something about those moments. Persecution breaks out, and immediately the church goes into fervent and earnest prayer for Peter's release. Why? Because sometimes all any of us can do is pray. So God answers in this miraculous way, a way that even Peter, the apostle, doesn't expect. And and what's the response of the church that's busy praying? Uh, You're out of your mind, Rhoda. You are out of your mind. (laughs) Such disdain and criticism. And it's clear that even though the church is praying passionately and fervently and, and earnestly, there's a part of them that doesn't believe anything's going to happen. And you know what? I take that as encouragement. I take it as encouragement because sometimes I'm earnestly pressing in. And there's this little part of me that's like, I'm asking God, but, you know, I know nothing might happen. And, and really, here they are. They're sort of part belief, part doubt. And, 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 and even though that's where they find themselves, that doesn't keep God from answering their prayer. That doesn't keep God from answering their prayer. So what is prayer then? What is prayer? Well, to put it bluntly, prayer is talking to God and hearing from God. Pete Gregg, in his book, Red Moon Rising, he says the following. He says, everyone prays, even non-Christians pray. The difference when Christians do it is that they are climbing into the lap of their Heavenly Father. They're climbing into the lap of their Heavenly Father. And I love that picture, I really do, because it evokes a sense of intimacy that's often lost in traditional circles when we talk about what it looks like to intercede and to connect with our Father God. And, and really, for many of us, we approach God with almost a, a please, sir, can I have some more um, attitude, almost this begging mentality. But the truth of the matter is that God is a good Father longing to draw us close and I think that's, that's the reality of the church in this passage. You can almost just see God lean in and earnestly hear what they're praying as they pour out their hearts and speak to him about what is going on in the church and in the life of Peter and in their lives. And, and really, when, when we speak to God about what's going on in our lives, in our marriages, in our work, in our city, in our, in our world, and as we do that, he hears us. And he responds. He hears us, and he responds. This kind of prayer that we're speaking about today has a specific name. It's called intercession or intercessory prayer. Um, There's a kind of prayer called petition, and that's when we ask God to come through for us. And there's a kind of prayer called intercession, and that's where we're asking God, God, would you come through for someone else or for our city or our world or a cause? Um, And really, it's pressing in in this way. And, And we're in good company when we do this because Jesus was often found stealing away to quiet places so that he could pray, so that he could pray. There's this pattern, and I'm about to read a scripture that's a little controversial, but I'm sure all of you have heard it somewhere in some form. But there's this pattern in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 13 and 14. Um, And it's a piece of scripture that's often quoted when it comes to prayer and requiring God to intervene. And, And it reads as such. It says, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among the people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. It's just this beautiful promise that God brings, and and I just want to say, when we look at these scriptures, we need to also recognize that this scripture comes in the midst of Israel and their blundering ways of, you know what, God, we're for you, and, and then we go back to our sin, and then God has to discipline a bit, and then we're for you, and then it's sin and discipline, and... And the reality for us looks a little bit different. Thank you, Jesus, um, because he came and he changed that whole cycle. But the, while we cannot contextually copy paste this scripture straight onto what we face today, what we can learn from it are the following three things. The first thing we can learn is that hardship will come, hardship will come. There will be famine, there will be drought. There will be difficulty, and, and really, hardship will befall our faith and our churches and our economy and our city and our country and our world. It's, it's, it's telling us that this will come, and some of it will be directly because of choices we have made, and some of it will be because we live in a fallen world. The second thing we see in this passage is we have a choice in terms of our posture in those moments when drought comes. I think there's, there's something to be said where the scripture is just going so beautifully. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Often when the hardship comes, we curse those in power. We curse our politicians or our mayor or our pastor or our bosses. Sorry, Joe. Um, or... Or we we choose to just direct our frustration in that way. But what would it look like if we decide to rather intercede for those in power? There's something amazing because the scripture teaches us that if we choose to pray, God will hear us. And, And there's something that happens in our heart posture in that moment that results when our choice is to pray rather than become bitter or curse or gossip against whoever is in power. The third thing we see in the scripture is just that we have a God who hears us when we earnestly turn to him and pray. What is in our heart matters to God. And we see over and over again that when the church prays, God intervenes powerfully, often in ways we could never foresee. Now, some of you are a little bit young to remember the falling of the Berlin Wall. <laughs> um, so, so, yes, I, I, I was not there, but I was alive. Um, but, but really, as, as we read about just that reality, Germany had become the front line in a Cold War standoff between nuclear powers, and, and the, the prevailing feeling among all of the people was fear. There was just this intense fear among people. And so there was this pastor of Leipzig's most dignified church, and it was a man ironically named Christian Führer. Okay, so I know, haha. Um, But he called people to pray every Monday night. And at the start, there were often less than a dozen people that would gather to pray for the falling of the Berlin Wall and the end of this war. But they huddled together in this cavernous Gothic barn, and, and they were praying, and they persevered. And about seven years later, here the seven years later, there were 8,000 people crammed into this little church, and outside in the streets and in other churches, there were as many as 70,000 people praying that this would change. It was the largest impromptu demonstration ever witnessed in East Germany since it had been formed and and with so many people expressing their protest in prayer, the state was preparing for anarchy. They were seeing the church rise up. They were seeing people praying. And, and they wanted to shut down this Monday night prayer rally that had been running for seven years. And, and on Monday, October 9th, they ominously added, we will shut this down with whatever means necessary. So the people knew as they took to the streets that things were getting serious. Doctors were forming impromptu emergency rooms because they knew that something was going to happen. And, and as the people stepped out onto the street with their candles and as they were praying, they just looked up onto the rooftops and they could see shadowy figures with guns ready to stop this protest. And and the crowds cradled their candles like stars and for a moment their voices all crescendoed in prayer. And yes, there was power in this moment and perhaps it was the authorities who were crazy to fight prayers with guns. And uh, one way or another they would soon find out. And after about an hour the pastor led the congregation out into the Augustusplatz and, and still clutching their candles they marched past the headquarters of the dreaded secret police chanting, no violence, and praying that it might be so. Surprisingly, the police never did open fire. And within a fortnight, two weeks later, that prayer rally had attracted 300,000 people who were praying together for the falling of the Berlin Wall. And within a month, four weeks later to the day, the Berlin Wall came tumbling down. And I don't know what it does to you, but But when they spoke to just some journalists and they spoke to one specific communist official, what he had to say was, we were prepared for every eventuality, he said, but not for candles and not for prayers. There's something beautiful and powerful about the church standing together and praying for their country and praying for what's happening around them. And there is something beautiful that happens when God comes in like a flood and he answers the prayers of his people. Intercession is for everyone, friends. I think sometimes we make the mistake of thinking, oh, you know, I've got this gift, so I don't really intercede or, or, or whatever it is, but it's for everyone. We are filled with the Spirit of God, and that Spirit is interceding with groans that words cannot express. One of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, Karl Barth, he said the following, he said, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. It's the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. And in Eugene Peterson's classic book, The Contemplative Pastry, he, he describes prayer as a subversive activity that involves a more or less open act of defiance against any claim by the current regime. There's something about intercessory prayer that just comes against whatever the enemy is doing in our country and in our workplaces and and wherever it is we find injustice. We are called to welcome Christ into every square inch of human existence. Your workplace, your university, wherever it is you find yourself, intercede for those spaces. Because wherever we see oppression, Wherever we see oppression among the poor, in our educational system, in government, and yes, even in the church, what do we do? We use our free wills to say defiantly, not my will, but yours be done. So how? How do we start to intercede? Well, we start by praying a simple but very big prayer. And it's one that I've prayed in the past, and there have always been interesting repercussions for it, but I'd encourage you to do that. And it's simply praying the prayer, Lord, would you break my heart for what breaks yours? Would you break my heart for what breaks yours? And it sounds so simple, but essentially what we're doing is we're asking God to come and transform our hearts to look more like his heart. So that we see the injustice around us. So that we care more about interceding for others than simply trying to pray ourselves into a better life. As our heart is transformed to look more like God's heart, there's this funny thing that happens. We instinctually start to intercede for people, for situations, for our country. So Pete Gregg says it this way. He says, intercession is impossible until we allow the things that break God's heart to break our hearts as well. I just quickly want to share another story that was told around the table. And and I know that some of you are sitting here today and you're going, what difference can my little prayer make? I mean, have you seen what's going on in our country? And maybe for some of you, you're just like, I, I don't know. I, I don't know about this prayer thing because, you know, other people can pray. I, I don't know if my prayers will make a difference. And and really, there's this beautiful story in Genesis 18 where where Abraham talks to God, and God reveals his plan. There's this evil, evil city called Sodom. Uh, Yes, that is the root of the word. But there's this evil city called Sodom, and because his nephew Lot lives there, Abraham starts to intercede with God on behalf of Sodom. God's decided, I'm wiping this place out. There's nothing good in Sodom. And Abraham goes, well, God, you know, let's talk. Um, If you find 50 good people in Sodom, will you spare it? And God goes, yeah, if I find 50 good people, I'll, I'll spare Sodom. And and then Abraham loses some of his resolve, and he's like, I doubt there are 50 good people in Sodom. And, and he goes, okay, God, what if it's 20? If you find 20 good people in Sodom, will you spare the city? And, and God goes, okay, fine, 20, I'll spare the city. And and, and then he comes back with a counteroffer, and he goes, okay, what about 10? <laughs> and him and God are having this discourse, and it's, it's amazing how God had a preconceived idea of what he wanted to do And because a good man, filled with faith, approached him and spoke to him, the course of action changed. God loves to hear his children reach out to him. He wants us to pray and to intercede for our city. The only thing is, obviously, if any of us have prayed constantly for something, we'll know that sometimes it doesn't turn out quite the way we've prayed. And sometimes it takes a long, long time. You guys didn't miss that little detail in the Berlin story where the church had gathered and prayed for seven, seven years together before they saw breakthrough. I prayed for my mom to come to know Christ 23 years before she came to know him. And we've all got different stories. I'm sure we could tell. We were interceding. Maybe we're still waiting and we're interceding for our city or for our government and we want to see change. Keep doing that thing. As we pray for our leaders and our government, let's not become weary and let's persevere earnestly in prayer for them. There's one other story of prayer and it's Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane and it's from Matthew 26. And and there's this beautiful tender moment where Jesus pursues God in prayer. He's brought some friends because I think there's something about communal prayer. I'm sure they were hearing him when they weren't asleep. but really, he comes and he says, Abba, Father. And that's how he starts his prayer. He goes, Abba, Father. Why? Because he anchors himself in God's love before he prays this prayer. And then he says, anything is impossible. Um, yeah, anything is impossible for you. Great. Faux pas. Um, <laughs> cut that out of the recording, please. <laughs> but, um, but anything, he says, anything is possible for you. And I I think he's saying that because he wants to remind himself of his father's power. He wants to remind himself of the fact that God literally can do anything. You think the injustice we see around us in our country cannot be fixed? It can, and it will, if the church prays. And I believe that, I believe that. There's this old Jewish saying, and it was one of the funnest things that I found while I was researching for this preach. And it says... God is not a kindly old uncle. He is an earthquake. He is an earthquake. And there's something about that that just gives me goosebumps because I'm like, that is exactly it. We we diminish God's power, but God can literally do anything. And then Jesus prays, take this cup from me in an honest and vulnerable moment with his father. And, and sometimes some of the best intercessory prayer we can do is when we connect with our hearts and we go, God, this is why this just wrecks me, is when I see people every time I stop at a robot and I see a mom and her small children and that is how they're making their life work. That wrecks me. And I think that is what intercessory prayer is. It's, it's what is wrecking your heart. Jesus' prayer was not answered with a Yes. Jesus did go to the cross, and sometimes ours won't be either. And I can't tell you why James died and Peter was set free. I can't tell you why some get cancer and and others experience chronic illness or bankruptcy and, and why others live mostly at ease. I can't tell you why some prayers are answered and some are not. But two things I know. It's not because God doesn't care, and it's not because he doesn't love us. He proved that in his willing death on the cross. We are supremely loved. And, and I just, before I close, have to throw in a Tim Keller quote or Joe won't love me anymore. But Tim Keller in his book on prayer, he says this, In prayer, God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knew. So God is not arbitrarily answering and denying prayers. He's answering them according to the good work that he is doing in us. And some answers we will only have one day when we see him face to face. So how then do we intercede? Four quick steps. And then we're going to draw to a close and we're going to go into a time of ministry. But four quick steps. Pete Gregg suggests the following four steps if you want to intercede for others or situations. And the first is get informed. Learn the facts. If you're going to pray for our government or our church or for our leaders, get informed. The second thing is get inspired. What is God saying about this area? What does he speak over his church and over our city and over our world? The third thing is get indignant, and that's where I like the word indignant because it's almost you can focus on that word dig. You dig down to the depths of who you are, and you go, you know what? This has to change. I am getting righteously angry. I am getting righteously indignant about the injustice that I see in our country, and I will keep praying until I see it change. So you engage your heart, and then fourth, get in sync, engage together, engage together, pray with other Christians. There is incredible power in the corporate prayer of the Christian church. Amen? Amen. So will we all do this? I hope so. Um, I, yeah, we're going to go into a time of prayer where, where Joe's going to facilitate us a little bit, but, but I wonder if I can just pray for us quickly. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the tales from the table. We thank you that your word contains so many accounts where you've come through, God, and and where your people have desperately been reaching out to you. And you hear your church, and you change an impossible situation. And and I want to pray for each heart here this morning. And I want to pray, God, that where our hearts have not been open to believe that you can make a change in the impossible situations in our country, in our workplaces, our schools, our world, our families, that you will shift that today. Will you fill us with faith and hope to believe that change is possible when your church prays? And will you fill us with an inward desire to pray often and earnestly and fervently for the things that need prayer? We believe that South Africa will be a country that is known for justice, that is known for truth, that is known for just social wholeness. Would you come and plant that seed in our hearts? And I wonder if maybe you're sitting here this morning, I spoke about that small um, but big prayer. If you're sitting here this morning and maybe... You you just feel, God, I want to start to pray those kinds of prayers. Would you open your hand as I just say, Lord, would you break our hearts for what breaks yours? Would you break our hearts for what breaks yours? We submit our hearts to you, God. Help us to see and help us to be a people that prays